So, before we go to the main topic, the meditation for the afternoon, which you all know will be loving-kindness, I wanted to uh, make a comment that is quite unrelated to that, but I think may be relevant to more than one person here. And that is, it's not at all uncommon when we're in such a, an environment with so few distractions and with so much emphasis on the mind and bringing clarity to the mind, attending to the mind, uh, that uh, s- sleep, how do you say, unevenness may arise. Some people having a hard time falling asleep. Other ones, and this is very common, are waking up long before you have really sl- you're slept out, so at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, when you know you really need 3 or 4 or more hours of sleep, but finding the mind so wide awake that you find it hard to get back to sleep. So if you're experiencing this, know that you're not the first person to experience it. And so that I thought I would suggest to all of you, and for those listening on the podcast also, even though not in retreat, um, a method that I've not actually shared explicitly here. It's just a variation on a familiar theme. And I'll give it a name so you'll all be able to remember it very easily. Uh, and that is a, mu- it's a name that I didn't coin. Actually, my stepdaughter, as far as I know, my stepdaughter Sarah coined it. Uh, and it is, you ready? We're up about to unveil a new word. Sleepitate. Sleepitate. You got it figured out? It's somewhere in between sleeping and meditating. But it's just exactly right. Sleepitate. All right, now, when my stepdaughter and I have discussed this, we've talked, we've talked about this as something to avoid. You know, don't just kind of hang out there, kind of dopey. What are you doing? Kind of meditating, kind of drowsing off, you know, kind of in between, more or less. I'm not quite sure. You know, so that we call sleepitating. And so, not to be, not to be confused with meditation and not, if not helpful. However, at one o'clock in the morning, you don't want to meditate. You're probably too tired to meditate, and you shouldn't be meditating. You should be sleeping. So what I've, what I've recommended thus far is just flip over into the, into the infirmary, the supine position, practice stage one, mindfulness of breathing, until you feel drowsy, and then move out of that position. And then, you know, when you're feeling sleepy, move out of that position, go back into sleeping posture, and then just fall asleep. In other words, practice shamatha for a while until you start finding laxity or dullness setting in, and then rather than counteracting it, release into it. But I'd like to introduce a variation on that theme because once you have gotten accustomed to meditating in the supine position, in the shavasana, and really using that to cultivate the mind, and I've mentioned a number of times now, strongly encouraging you don't use that posture, that shavasana, for, (coughs) excuse me, for napping. (coughs) Excuse me or napping, or watching television on your ceiling-mounted television, or any other purpose only for meditation. And so and I would stand by that. That So you're by, sheer by association, as soon as you formally adopt that posture, it's only for meditation. That's a really good idea. So I stand by that. What I would suggest now is a variation on what I've mentioned in the past, and that is, let's say it's 1 o'clock in the morning, you've just woken up, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, which means sem sewa shiratu, mind is very clear, and you really need to get back to sleep, and you know that. Uh, but you're too awake to fall asleep and too sleepy to meditate. So that in between ground. Then I would suggest sleepitate, deliberately sleepitate. So don't call it shamatha, and don't go into the shavasana. Keep that for meditation. But just go into the posture that you are most familiar with and, and that you sleep in. So whether it's on your right side or left side, whatever it may be, but where you often find yourself when you're sleeping or when you're ready, really ready to fall asleep, go into that posture, all right? 
Now, what do you do besides that? Because that's kind of obvious. Besides that, then in that posture, then go into the infirmary, but specifically bring your awareness way out of the head. That's very important. Down to the waist, down to the legs, down to the feet, way down to boring area. This is really boring. The sensations down there, they're not going in and out. There's nothing interesting. It's just kind of a steady stream of really boring sensations. But it gets the prana out of the head. Because you, as you might recall, in the waking state, in the, according to Buddhism, the pranas tend to really converge at the forehead chakra inside the, inside the head, which is exactly probably in the frontal cortex, I imagine. Whereas in deep sleep, the prana then coalesces at the heart chakra. So bring it down to the heart, but really below the heart, so balance out from its, its tendency to rise up to the head, bring it way down. And in Padmasambhava's teachings in Dream Yoga, he comments that one of the obstacles to becoming lucid is insomnia. Okay, so that, and that's a, a you know according to tradition that's a twelve hundred year old text, so it has, has a lot of history behind it. And he suggests visualizing little black orbs of light, so black light or a little orb of blackness uh, on the soles of your feet. Now this is in this is an eighth century Tibet, and I imagine they could probably visualize something like that and fall asleep. But most people I know can't visualize anything and fall asleep, not even a little black orb. And so you can try it but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't work. In which case, don't try to visualize anything, but just bring your, your awareness way down to the feet. You know, just let it way down to the, the, the legs, the calves, down, way down to the lower portion of the body. So keep it down there in this most boring region of the, your somatic field. And then relax deeply into the breath. So it's a little bit like meditating. Relax into the breath, every out-breath. Keep releasing whatever thoughts come up. Just keep on releasing. And, keep, and just keep on doing that. That is grounding your awareness in the earth element. Awareness down below the waist. Releasing the breath with every breath all the way out. Releasing thoughts whenever they come. So it sounds kind of like meditating and it sounds kind of like falling asleep. And therefore, sleepitate. Okay? So you might try that. Because getting enough sleep, frankly, is pretty important. It's, it's just as important as getting enough food and of the right kind, right quantity, the right intervals, and so forth. It is basic nourishment. So for, for, for the body and mind, food, food exercise, <clears throat> and such. And for then for accessing the substrate consciousness, that's what shamatha is for. Hola, so. So now let's go on to the meditative cultivation of loving kindness. And you'll remember we've been doing this in three phases. And I checked with several people about exactly what to do this afternoon. I checked with the president of the Santa Barbara Institute, the founder of the Santa Barbara Institute, also the director of the Mind Center and the chairman of the Mind Center. So I checked with some pretty substantial people, and they all agreed. <laughs> I checked with a team of experts, and they all agreed that um, cool it with the guided meditations for a little while, let people start guiding themselves in meditation. And... Uh, so what I thought I would do this session is kind of front-load it, and that is get the talk out of the way. Basically, a simply a reminder of the framework, because this is what I'm holding in mind. Whenever I'm leading a guided, guided meditation, I'm holding the fra- framework in mind, and then just whatever thoughts come up, whatever words come out, they come out. But the framework is preconceived. That's already a package. And then I deliver it in meditation, and then, again, the just words flow out. And so for this first cultivation of loving-kindness... I think it's very, very meaningful to keep on returning again and again 
to this theme of loving kindness for oneself, which the Buddha explicitly encouraged, very much embraced in the Theravada tradition and in a big discussion with His Holiness, very compatible with the Mahayana tradition and so on. And so the sequence for that, just to re- so, I, by the way, I know also when you're listening to a guided meditation and you're simply hearing the instructions and doing them, I know very well, it's very hard to remember because you're not thinking, you're not writing notes as you're med- meditating. I mean, that's completely multitasking. So it's very easy to go through a 24-minute session, follow every step, you know, really enter the meditation, and at the end, not have at all a clear recollection of each of the phases you were just guided through because you were just, just doing it. Um, so, I mean, I know for myself, to take a quick analogy, if I'm simply driving in a car, riding in a car with somebody else, and they're, they're making, you know, left, right, left, right, left, right, and I'm just in conversation with them and enjoying the ride, I don't remember how to get there because it wasn't my job. I was just sitting in the passenger seat. So it's a little bit like that. I'm, I'm, I've been driving. You're in the passenger seat for the guided meditations. So I'm giving you the instructions up front. Okay? So this is only sta- there are only four stages. Four stages. And they'll be familiar to, with, to you. But now, if you wish to take notes or just four, you can probably memorize as well. The first one. Each of these is a type of vision quest or a quest for your own vision of your own flourishing. And the first one is to envision that. What would make you truly happy? And in this regard, as you envision this, by all means, include the hedonic. Having enough to eat, clothing, shelter, medical care when you need it, those are really, really important, right? And so, including that. Also, more intangible things like just uh, friendship, companionship, um, perhaps a partner, you know, an intimate partner, husband, wife, live-in partner, whatever you like. That for some people, that's very important. So there's the hedonic, and then on the basis of that, when you see, all right, my hedonic needs, my very important hedonic needs. Here I can imagine them satisfied. It would be nice to have a house of this quiet, but it doesn't need to be ten times as big. Be, it, I, I need a car for my occupation, but it doesn't need to be a Porsche, and so forth. And so the hedonic, and then on that, then let your imagination really play. And this is where Dharma comes in. Here's where your own experience in meditation comes in your appreciation of dharma, and that is to envision, really, your own flowering, your flourishing. How could your practice unfold? Uh, what would truly bring you happiness, right? Uh, eudaimonic well-being. So there's the first one, and to envision that, and as you then have some vision, and knowing that you're not trying to get the right answer, if you do this again 10 days from now, hopefully you'll have some variations on the theme. It won't just be bringing it out of the, out of the closet. It says, oh yes, this is my vision, I remember it well but something that freshly comes to mind, right? So that's one. And then as you bring that to mind, your own flourishing, then arouse the yearning with each out-breath if you wish. Visualizing your Buddha nature at your heart if you wish. And then breathing out, breathe life into that vision and letting your imagination play. Imagine realizing that. Arousing yearning for it and imagining breath by breath that you're there. You're actually experiencing it here and now. That's the first one. The second one then is with with the recognition that none of us is an island, none of us can find any kind of well-being, hedonic or eudaimonic, without reliance on anybody else. Even if you had a box full of jewels, gold, and paper currency and coins, it's a very unbalanced diet. 
if you start trying to eat jewels and paper money and so forth, you get very little nutritional value. If nobody wants to swap their food for your stuff, then you're going to starve to death. And the, I think the, I would go for the paper myself, better than the jewels or the you know. Like, but still, not much nutritional value. So even if we have money, we are re- reliant upon others, you know, for just not just our food, for everything, right? And so, as we envision, what would we first of all love, and then getting a bit clearer, what do we really need from the world around us? We can once again imagine whatever our hedonic needs are, imagine them being met as we aspire for them to be met. But we can also go to the more intangible. And if you're, if you're, how do you say, religious, if you're specifically religious Buddhist, then you may be invoking the blessings of your guru, the blessings of the lamas, the guru, the, the, the Buddhas and so forth, and inviting the blessings in, the guidance, the blessings, uh, that your, your whole spiritual practice may be enriched. And so this is also calling upon those in the environment that they may support us, nourish us in every way, every needed way, to find the genuine happiness that we seek. So that's the second one. And you can breathe that in with every in-breath. Just imagine all the your hedonic needs, your eudaimonic needs, the blessings all flowing in with each in-breath. That's the second one. And then we come to the recognition that even with all the help in the world, even if you're surrounded by just a host of Buddhas, all just having no other job than to help you become enlightened, just a me, me, no, listen to me, me, and all the Buddhas in competition to try to get your attention so they can guide you to enlightenment, um, and then just surrounded by mountains of food and all that, you know, every hedonic need met and all the Buddhas wanting to help you, if, you, if there's no internal transformation, then, then the outside is not going to be sufficient. So clearly, the real core, I would say in Tibetan terminology, the outside is the gen and the inner is the gyu, is the outsider contributing condition. But what really brings this about, of course, is the inner transformation for which the outer is simply catalysts, right? So then you come inwards and recognize that now how in the same spirit, not should, 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 but how might I, how would I love to transform? Kind of in a, in a, a sense of jubilation as you consider the possibilities that none of our obscurations, none of our habits are hardwired into our Buddha nature. They're not even hardwired into the substrate consciousness. They're just habits. And as they formed, so can they unform. So imagine being free of those habits, mental afflictions, behaviors, and so forth that impede our well-being. And then I think we're all getting a clearer and clearer sense of what are the causes, the true causes of genuine happiness. And so imagine then your own spiritual evolution, your own maturation as you release the old habits, mental addictions, and so forth, and then cultivate or unveil those qualities that are truly conducive. And once again, you can breathe life into this vision of your own maturation, almost as if you're bringing to mind time-lapse photography of yourself evolving, evolving, and then coming to fruition. You know, So there's phase three. And you can breathe out, and then so breathe life into, or imagine light filling that vision. Imagine it becoming true. And then the fourth one, we return to this, the, the theme of interconnectedness. And that is that however we leave, lead our lives, however we do, for better or worse, we are all, even if we live in solitude as a yogi or in solitude as a misanthrope, a person who hates people, and that's why I just want to get away from everybody and just sit by myself and be grouchy all by myself. You know, no matter what we do, whether in solitude or whether we're socially engaged, all of us are always having an impact on the world. The grouchy own misanthrope, 
the, the hermit in a cave, the person running a, an orphanage, and so, a monastery, and so forth and so on, in all of our walks of life, we're all having an impact. We are influencing the world around us, physically, psychologically, spiritually, and so forth, in many ways. And so the last quest, the last question, is in order, once again, coming back to this loving kindness for ourselves, in order to find the greatest meaning, the greatest fulfillment for ourselves, what would we really love to offer to the world? And here I would fully expect that we'll have, if there are 38 people in the room, 38 unique visions. Because each of us comes here to this retreat with unique backgrounds, strengths, talents, experiences, and so forth. So ultimately all the Buddhas have the same qualities. But getting there, a lot of differentiation. And even, this is an interesting point, even after you become a Buddha, you'll still have greater karmic connection with some sentient beings than with others which means you have a greater capacity to be of service to them, right? So we see this in the Buddha's own life. Those five, five disciples, those five companions that he sought out in Saranat, he, he had had relationship with them time and time and time again in previous lives. And that's why those five happened to be his companions when they were all ascetics together. Happened to be, because there was enormous karmic flow there, right? And so in this regard, envisioning... What would you love to offer to the world, to those who are near to you, to those who are far, to the natural environment for short-term and long-term, just letting your imagination play. And with each out-breath, imagine the light from your heart taking on the forms of the type of service, the goods, and so forth that would really bring you the greatest satisfaction to be able to offer to others, the greatest meaning. And on that note, then you release all appearances and let your awareness rest where it was in the first place. Okay? So hopefully that's a good synopsis. And so then I'll have now a silent meditation. But those are the four basic outlines. And when we're just about a minute or so towards the end of the retreat, then I'll just, since I have a clock right in front of me, type uh, a counter that counts down, uh, then I'll just kind of signal you. Now, if you wish, you can release all the aspirations, let your awareness rest. We can remain for a few minutes after that. And then the meditation will be over. Sound good? Okay, let's try it.
release all appearances and let your awareness rest.
and let's bring the session to a close. Well, not so. So first of all, are there any questions about the practice from this morning? The phase one of mindfulness of breathing, <coughs> the infirmary, is that completely transparent? Or any questions, uncertainties there for that one particular practice? Okay, it looks like confidence. Uh, I will add one footnote to that. I've had at least a few students who have a medical condition called, I believe it's acid reflux. Um, where is Marissa? Is that right? Oh, no, no, Marissa, uh, Annie. Did I get it right? A- acid reflux, where they, yeah? Uh, it's, a, it's just a digestive problem, and it's called digestive uh, acid reflux, and anybody who knows, who's, who has it, knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, for such people, if you have such problem of indigestion and, and acid coming up from the stomach, uh, then what I've been told indirectly, but from the medical community, uh, is that it would be better if you have that not to go into the supine position for up to two hours, at least an hour after a meal, especially after a full meal, because that can actually uh, arouse that acid reflux and you won't like it. And so an hour or two after, so walk, stand, sit upright meditation, but not supine. And whether you're meditating or not, you shouldn't go into supine right after a meal. Okay, for people with acid reflux. Uh, so I've been told, so I'm passing on knowledge that I don't have myself. I'm just, but now this is based upon authority beyond mine, anything I know. Uh, and then also, generally speaking, I've been told that even if you have fairly normal digestion, generally better at least 20 minutes or half an hour after a meal not to go into the supine position because, again, we're, uh, the digestive tract is designed that the food goes down and doesn't go sideways. And so you let gravity do its work and let the food go where it should and then you'll avoid any digestive problems. Um, if I may ask, any, 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 anything to add to that, or did anything I see, everything I said, said sounded good? Okay, and nothing to add? Should? Totally good, thank you. That is an, uh, that is an important point for people who, have, who, do, who do have acid reflux. Uh, spending a lot of time in, in, the, in the supine position, especially after meals, can really uh, damage you. So that's, that's the last thing I would ever want from people meditating, that you harm yourself. Okay, we've, we've looks like we have a consensus. Oh, go ahead, Annie. Yes. Uh, and uh, around the morning session? Around the, yeah, oh, uh, by, by all means, now's the time. So not full confidence. Um, so in the latter part of the practice this morning, when the awareness rests, um, where you feel the sensations of the breath most distinctively. Quite so, yes. If that happens to be the abdomen... And the rise and the fall of the abdomen, 
then it starts to feel very much like the second practice, mm -hmm. although the emphasis still remains on the relaxation. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's perfectly right, yeah. And so the, this is a very good question. So if it kind of drifts over to phase two of mindfulness of breathing, what I'm, I'm, what I'm calling phase two, but you all know what I'm referring to, uh, and that is attending to the rise and fall of the abdomen, that's perfectly fine. Uh, I, I phrase it as I do so that you do have in that initial phase with the primary overwhelming emphasis on relaxation that sense that all you're doing is gently corralling, corralling the wild steed of your attention. So it's not being, it's not being uh, how do you say, tied down to a stake, you know? But rather, because you can imagine, imagine a horse that's, that's roped to a stake. Well, then it, it, it's going to really feel that. And the horse probably won't like it unless it's already tamed. Whereas if you just put your, your, your wild horse into a nice, fairly large, grassy meadow with a fence around it, that's a very different experience for the horse, I would imagine, right? And so it's much more like that. The horse will feel, well, at least I can frolic around here, and I see the grass is good over here, munch here, and then munch there, and kick up my heels here, and munch over there. So the horse is still corralled, but there's that sense of ease, of looseness and relaxation. And that's what I'm encouraging, that, that mood, that spirit, that the horse doesn't just get to go wander off anywhere it likes, and if it jumps the fence, then you bring it back right? Goes into another sense field, gets caught up by thoughts and so forth. You, you know, release it from that attraction and come back to the field of the body, the, this gra nice grassy meadow of the somatic field of, of tactile sensations. And so within that, you can just feel that you can roam at will, wherever the, wherever the attention just moves about, even down to the legs, the abdomen, the nostrils, wherever it goes. But if, as you're getting settled in and settled in, uh, if you find that where it's most distinctly arising and where you're your attention is just kind of naturally gravitating, as if there's some really lush grass right in the middle of the meadow, you know? And the horse, having scoped out the whole meadow, this, this corralled, fi corralled field, then kind of gravitates to the really lush grass in the middle. That's fine. It didn't go there because it had to, because you forced it to, but that's just where it naturally gravitated. That's where the grass is greener, so to speak. And so if the grass is greener right in your midsection, and that's where your, your attention naturally gravitates to, no problem. If it slips up to the nostrils, goes down to the legs, whatever, that's also fine. So it's a very gentle kind of corralling of the attention, mood on that. Sometimes it's, if it's more just a diffuse awareness, not moving here from the abdomen to the knee to the nostrils to here, 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 but more just kind of a general presence of awareness throughout the body and noting the whole ripple effect, the, the repercussions of the breath throughout the body, but without being focused in one place or another, that's also perfectly fine. So, the, so find, again, in summary, it's just a gentle containment of the attention within this field, and then within that field, wherever the attention goes, it's just fine. Okay? Very good practical question. Yeah. So anything else for this morning? Yes, Anne. Um, I'm hoping this falls under the heading of this morning. It's maybe a little more general. Um, I've been having headaches for a few days. Headaches for a few days, yes, okay. Yeah, and I, I, can't, I can't figure it out. You know, uh -huh. I, I don't know where I'm tense. I just know that I'm tense. You don't know where? Where I'm tense, I just know that I am tense. Yeah. Somewhere, you yeah. know, there's a headache. And it's manifesting as a headache, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I, when I um, try to just do... The stage infirmary? two, yeah, 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 the infirmary, yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't go away. Uh huh. So, no, it's a very practical question, and it's very relevant. 
to this morning's practice. So I'm, I'm very, very glad these questions are coming up now. Uh, it's good now that within everybody's, because I've mentioned this one-on-one to a few people here or there, uh, but now for everyone, because again, now that we're in week six, um, even though we're still, I hope, very much in retreat, um, it's bound, you know, thoughts are bound to be arising. Well, what about after the retreat? And I think occasionally if they come up, that's just fine. And so here's for the long term. And that is when tension does build up, and it could come up from a variety of reasons. Maybe, you've, maybe one has had a really tough day at work, and you know exactly where the tension came from. It was a, just a tough day at work, and the head, there's tension in the body and kind of a throbbing in the head, what have you, or whether it's coming out of the meditation. Either way, um, overall, I would suggest two large-scale strategies for just releasing the tension, whether it mounts in the, in the head or other people in different parts of the body. Um, base of the neck, the shoulders, that's another big magnet for, for tension, as every masseuse knows. So the first one is the infirmary, so no more words needed. Uh, but I've told the spirit of that in the infirmary, especially in the supine position. The whole idea is to release, uh, release that tension by letting your awareness come into the body, come to the ground and breathing out, breathing out. But it's very much, as I just said to Annie, it's very much a matter of letting your awareness be contained within the field of the body, right? And so there's a containment there. And then the earth element, so that's it. Containment within the body, earth element, breathing out, breathing out. But clearly there's a containment. And the idea there is to take that bunched up energy, that contracted or constricted energy, that's going to the shoulders, the face, the eyes, the jaws, the forehead, and so forth, diffuse it, let it assimilate, and to become diffuse throughout the body, and hopefully, and in many cases, it does work. That relieves the tension because the, the, uh, it just gets more dispersed. And the same amount of energy just risks for the whole body then doesn't experience, is not experiences tension. It just feels like kind of energetic. But that doesn't, as you so rightly pointed out, based on your own experience, uh, is that doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. So then we need a plan B. And the plan B is instead of trying to contain that energy within the field of the body, release it out into space. And so I would suggest nip this in the bud when you see that happening. The, the t- headaches are not to be mildly tolerated. I mean, obviously, they simply happen, in which case we can't just say goodbye and they vanish. But they're not a habit to be cultivated. If we see it's in any way related to meditation, nip it in the bud. It's not a nyam. It's not a nyam that we just let it be and watch it come and stay and stay and stay and stay and stay and stay. You know? uh, so we'll show some kind of a degree of i use the word intolerance to it. I mean, we're really, really wanting to have it go away as soon as possible. The other strategy, as I said or began to say, release it into space. So when you feel such tension starting to mount, some constriction, tightness in the body, wherever it manifests in the body, then what I would suggest is the alternate approach is to go out walking. Go out walking. Uh, it can be, you know, I would suggest a normal walk or even a bit, of a, a bit faster, a bit brisk walk. Get that energy moving. Get, get the cardiovascular system moving, at least enough for normal walking, but maybe brisk walking. You don't need to jog, although if you like jogging, that can be very helpful. If that's good for your system, um, jogging is just fine also. For some people, it's better. For some people, not so good. But brisk walking, pretty much, that's good for everybody. So brisk walking, get the energy moving, moving. And, of course, your legs are moving. That brings the energy down to the big leg muscles and so forth. That's just part of it. But now, as you're walking... Let your awareness really come out, out into space. Get it off your own concerns, off the I, me, mine. My body, my meditation, my hopes, my fears, my plans, my past, my, my, my. 
and just release it out into space and so bring your awareness out into the visual field and attend to what's around you, the sky, the clouds uh, here, the jungle, the birds in the jungle, the insects on the ground, the people passing by and so forth. But really come out, be spacious. On occasion, you may just stop and stand and let your attention come way out as far as you can, out to clouds, because we always have clouds here. I don't think I've seen a single day when there's not a single cloud in the sky. This is an island. It's a tropical island. So clouds coming and going. And so let your awareness come out into space, out into the natural environment, out to other people, out to other sentient beings. And not only out to the visual field, but out to the auditory, you know, really attend out to the sounds of your environment. And then let it come out where your feet are coming in contact with the ground. Treading, 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 feeling the earth element as step by step your feet are coming into the ground. And it's almost as if you're releasing that energy into the ground, but now in motion. So in all of these ways, coming out of the visual field, the auditory field, the tactile field, breathe out, let your awareness come out, and do that repeatedly. You can take more than one day a week. Oh, actually, one, one, I'm sorry, blah, one walk a day, more than one walk a day. Uh, in one earlier retreat, actually it was one of the three-month retreats in the Shamatha Project, uh, there was a person who, I don't think she had any history of depression, coming into the retreat. I don't recall her having had that. But well into the retreat, it was a three-month retreat, so maybe in the second month, maybe even the third month, I think it was the second, she just experienced kind of a a real dip into some days of depression. Not an afternoon, that's that's just a yum. But it kind of slipped into days, one, two, three days, where it was kind of like this heavy fog was over her. And when I spoke with her in our one-on-one meeting, just like we have here, there was nothing she was really depressed about. And it wasn't bringing up old memories. It was just depression, one of those objectless, I feel cruddy, you know, but it was lingering for days. Uh, and it was making, of course, you didn't want to meditate. The whole thing was heavy, of course. And so we're, at, at that time, we're living up at 8,000 feet in the, in the Rocky Mountains. And so the, the air is bracing and it's big mountains and good vigorous hikes all over the place with a lot of up and a lot of down, which we don't have here. But uh, so I, I encourage you to make full use of the natural environment and I said, just go out hiking. I suggest, just go out hiking. Because I, th- there wasn't any issue to work through. There was, I, I mean, there was a therapist, but what do you talk about? I just feel cruddy. And I don't think anything works through. I just feel really cruddy, you know? So I said, just, just go out hiking, but just really hike. And, and do the same thing. Awareness come out and out and out. And enjoy the natural beauty of there is high forest, coniferous forest. And just hike and hike and hike. And she did. I think it was about one, two days of hiking like four or five hours a day. And she really got out there. And the depression completely vanished and did not come back. Okay? So sometimes we just need to cut loose. And I think she was, she was hiking mindfully. She wasn't just, you know, she wasn't just bailing from the retreat because she was very committed to it. But she was hiking mindfully. And then that was part of her practice. So here we don't have mountains, but we have the beauty of this environment. It is certainly lovely. And then the Thai people all these smiling faces that we encounter in so many places. So that's what I would recommend. Get out, breathe, walk. And of course, you can swim also. But um, that's what I would suggest. Okay? And then let me know how it works. Okay? Good. So anything more for the morning's practice? Yes, Alan. Right behind you. Uh, In your book, The Attention Revolution, um, you mentioned the fact... um, and you should be noticed seeing whether it's a, it's a shallow breath or a full breath. Yeah. Is this something like counting that you can either do or not? 
I just missed. Is it like counting? Or is it is it like counting your breaths? Something that you 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 might do at the beginning, but then forget about it once you settle okay, into the practice. Okay, good question. Really good. I'm so glad these are these are coming out, and then you know, we can all share in the question and in the response. No, for that I'm referring right back to the Buddha's core instruction, and when I say core, it's right to the bone. The Buddha's instruction in the Pali Canon on mindfulness of breathing, and it comes in just well, it's a bit more elaborate. It comes in 16 phases. Uh, but for the shamatha phase, because the last 12 phases are all the pashana. So in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddhist discourse on mindfulness of in and out breathing, he presents mindfulness of breathing in 16 phases. And when you finish, say, phase 16, you haven't achieved shamatha. You become an arhat. Okay? So the final 12 phases are all vipassana. It's all insight practice. And the first four are all samatha, or shamatha all about stabilizing the mind. So the first four are developing your, your contemplative technology and the last 12 are, are practicing contemplative science to completely liberate the mind of all afflictions. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant discourse. And Buddha Gosa's commentary is outstanding. I mean, of course, he's, he's classic. So that said, then we focus just on the first four because here we are practicing shamatha. Later on, maybe next year in the, in the fall, then we may, do, may very well do a Vipassana retreat. Instead of shamatha in the fall, I'm kind of thinking pretty seriously. In the fall of 2012, instead of a shamatha eight-week retreat, a vipassana eight-week retreat on the four, the four applications of mindfulness from both Theravada and Mahayana perspectives. But that's, as they say, manana manana. Here we are. How do you say today? Oi. 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 That's easy. Okay, so today we're practicing shamatha. And so in the Buddhist shamatha instructions of mindfulness of breathing, the first one is breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. That's it. Those are the first two phases. How short was that? that was, there's only four of them, and those are the first two. Right? The next one is breathing in, um, mindfully attending to the whole body, I breathe in, mindfully attending to the whole body, I breathe out. That's the whole body of the breath. And then the final one is soothing the composite of the body-mind, the five skandhas, the composite of the body-mind, I breathe in, soothing the composite of the body-mind, I breathe out. And welcome to shamatha. That's it. Those are his instructions. And then we have commentary and commentary, but that's the bare bones of it. So, uh, the Buddha didn't himself refer to, as far as I know, I've never seen any teaching by him on counting breaths, but it's so useful that, that traditions all over, all over Asia, Indo-Tibetan, East Asian, and South Asian, they all count the breaths. You know, so there it is. It's, it's very helpful. Uh, and this is where the richness of the Sangha comes in. I think there are some purists that say, oh, never mind the commentaries. Just what did the Buddha say? What did the Buddha say? As if all the centuries of practitioners, of arhats, of bodhisattvas, and so forth, as if they came up with nothing. That, I think, is really way fundamentalist. I mean, the Buddhist teachings, from my perspective, are sublime, but so the unfolding and the, the clarification of that by great adepts in multiple traditions, I mean, the, terib- the Southeast Asian, the East Asian, and to ignore generations of Sangha, of Arya Sangha, of Arhat Sangha, Bodhisattva Sangha, and so forth, oh, that seems to me like we're really jipping ourselves. So, coming back then, when the Buddha speaks of, of breathing in along and knowing I breathe in long, breathing out long, breathing in short, breathing out short, 
I think my, my sense of this, and I've, again, I've studied a number of commentaries to this, is that when we're first setting down to practice, the mind, just before we, have, just before we are focusing single-pointedly on the breath, is probably going to be relatively coarse. Relatively coarse, relative to how our minds will be a half an hour into the session or four weeks into an eight-week retreat. And that is the mind should be calming down through the practice. The, whole, the mind should be calming down. The whole prana system should, should calm down. And as the prana system settles into more equilibrium, becomes more refined, then naturally the sensations of the breath also get more refined. There it is. So in the beginning, relatively speaking, the sheer in and outflow of the breath is largely, likely going to be fairly large volume. And for most people, that ex- they'll experience that as a long breath in, long breath out. Okay, So to answer your question more succinctly, uh, it's not so necessarily a matter of counting. Asanga, the great 5th century Mahayana master, gives detailed instructions on counting, counting the breath in the Shravaka Bhumi, which I've translated but not published, different types of counting. And then after he's done this, he said, now some people are inclined to count and some people are don't. If you don't like it, then don't do it. Just that, you know. So he gives all the instructions and said, not for everybody. And so... Let's leave aside the, the issue of counting for the time being. Some people find it helpful, some not so much, and some people just intermittently. But this is more, as I mentioned earlier to, to Annie, we're moving from coarse to subtle. I've mentioned this many, many times. It's characteristic of many forms of Buddhist meditation. Moving the course, and then <coughs> gradually the mind becomes more subtle, and the practice then also becomes more subtle. Right? And so when we're first venturing in, in phase one, especially phase one, just the, the just releasing the infirmary, so you know the drill, emphasis and relaxation. We're, we are attending, we are attending to the sensations of the in and out flow of the breath, and with some degree of discernment, but very little, because we're not really focusing yet. We're just trying to calm down and loosen up, and so simply noting if the breath is relatively the in breath is relatively long, we simply note it. We don't have to say that was a seven second and that, well, that was a nine second and this was a five second. Just relative to me, that was kind of long. And then when the breath goes out, kind of long, right? Sometimes it may be short in and then long out. Sometimes long in, short out. I mean, it can vary a little bit. Uh, and so the overall pro- the progression is that generally speaking, when we start, the volume of air coming in and out will be relatively large. As the whole system calms down, then the, the amount of oxygen we need decreases because we're, we're just sitting there doing nothing and even the mind is getting calmed down. So therefore, the breath may naturally shorten because the, the volume that we need is less. So as that happens, and there's in, in a progression, as the, the, the length, the duration of each in and out breath decreases, then when simply in a very general way notes, ah, Short in-breath, long out-breath, short out-breath, short in-breath, short out-breath. It would be like a number of people coming through the, through the door there, okay? So some people here are relatively tall. You'd be a relatively tall one, and some relatively short. I think Sylvia would be relatively short, right? And so, but now we have all these variations. I mean, you know, a whole bunch of kind of relatively, but when you walk in, I say you're relatively tall. And when Sylvia walks in, relatively short, you know? When my wife walked in, she'd be even relatively shorter, I think. Uh, so it's generally, ah, short person just walked in. Tall person just walked out. Short person walked in. Short person walked out. Oh, tall people walking in. T- walk. 
That general kind of thing, you know? So it's not precise, it's not meticulous, it's not quantitative. What it, what it implies, though, is if a tall... Oh, well, I'll give, give, give this analogy just a second. But if a tall person walks in, you're attentive enough. Did you recognize oh, that was one of the tall ones? And a shorter person walks in, you're attentive enough, you know, that's a, that's a shorter person. This actually relates to one of the measurements done uh, that was specifically created for the Shamatha project. You might have heard of it, where the meditators in the beginning, middle, and end of the, re- of the three-month retreats were put in front of a computer screen, and on the screen would flash a long line and a short line. And they would be shown rather randomly, so you, and for a very, very brief period. Uh, I can't remember, 50 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds, something like that. So you have to be very focused there. And so there's long line and short line. And as the, and so you get long line, long, a long line showing up. And then, and then there's a short line. Or maybe it's another long line. So it's random. And you don't know, they're not, they're not rhythmic. It's not every five seconds. You just never know what's coming up. And so the, the meditators were then, as I recall, I don't remember all the details of it, but they needed to click either when it was a long, li- a long line or a short line, right? If just that, long or short. And if you're there, you're focused right in that moment when this brief flash comes on, then you, then you get the right answer. If your mind is wandering or it's kind of vague, then you might not even see the flash, it's so short, or you might not remember. You, just might, you not, might not have enough attention to even be able to detect or remember whether it was long or short. So they were testing something like that. What they didn't tell the meditators, and this was, I would say, a scientifically justified dirty trick. So I do mean scientifically justified. I, I, I allowed it. Um, and it was. It was, it, was, it was really okay. And it was a dirty trick. And that is when people got better at it. So you're getting into retreat. Maybe you're, in, you're now in the middle, midway of the retreat. Maybe you're coming toward the end of retreat, your third trial. And you're getting pretty darn good at it. You know, like almost 100%. Long line, you got it. Short line, you got it. Then the sci- what the scientists did that the meditators didn't know about is they made the difference in, in length between the two, the long and the short, smaller. And they kept on doing that to make sure that people would continue to err. So you would think you're getting better, but then you, you wouldn't. And you wouldn't know why you're not doing any better because they never told you that the difference between the long and the short is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, because they, they'll keep on doing that to make sure that you continue to err. And they had some scientific reason for wanting to do that. But what it wound up, I know, no, uh, I'll keep his name anonymous, but one very experienced meditator, I'll put it that way, a Westerner I know, who's a very experienced meditator, and I know more than one, uh, he, he, he did this. That is, he, he, he let himself be a subject for that. And he came away and said, I hated that. <laughs> he couldn't stand it. Because it is frustrating. It's designed in a way to frustrate you, if you have any kind of grasping at all. Okay? So, very good question. Does that answer the question? Okay. Jolly good. Anything? Oh, oh. Well, lots of questions cropping up after five weeks. Francesca. So... When I meditate uh, on the mindfulness of breathing, yes. I, I stay with my eyes closed. Yes. And this morning, it was very difficult for me to, uh, to maintain stability mm-hmm. because my eyes tended to open uh-huh. so continuously. So I had to check my eyes instead of 
instead of having mindfulness of breathing. Understood, yeah. So this is very new, uh-huh. <laughs> something new. And, and, and why, why did your eyes open here, whereas they did not in the past? No, it started today. Say again? It started today. Just today, the eyes, eyes are opening. Yeah. Ah, Annie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's called the open eye syndrome. <laughs> I have no idea why your eyes would be opening today. Uh, but I have a label for it. It's called the open eye syndrome. You know what happens when that happens? You meditate, your eyes just start opening. And so I, I've given now, I think, a very accurate diagnosis. It's called the open eye syndrome. It's kind of like irritable bowel syndrome. You know, your bowels feels really irritable, and therefore they call it irritable bowel syndrome. It's very helpful to have labels like that. Um, so in, as I've mentioned in the past, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, because irritable bowel syndrome is something where they know the symptoms, then overall they don't know what causes it. And so you just wind up with a bunch of symptoms and a nice name. Uh, so that's what I've given yours, open eye syndrome. Okay? Well, well, let's hope it's not infectious, though, because I'd hate for you know, Andreas and, and Trish to catch it from you. Um, as you may recall, in multiple traditions, that is Theravada, Inter-Tibetan, and so forth, there are, there's different counsel, different advice given uh, about whether the eyes should be open, closed, or hooded. Uh, there are some Tibetan, medit- some, medita- some Tibetan meditation teachers that say no matter what kind of meditation you do, keep your eyes open. doesn't matter what it is. Discursive meditation, visualization, stage regeneration, shamatha, keep your eyes open. Quite, quite adamant about it. Uh, and yet others, that's not necessary, let your, let your eyes be closed. So when your eyes do open, and if they just keep on opening like that, just spontaneously, then what I would suggest um, is simply develop a new skill. That is, when I've taught settling the mind in its natural state or awareness of awareness to people who've never, never heard of it before, many of them are always accu- have, have accustomed themselves always to meditating with eyes closed. And then when I say, let the eyes be open, they say, oh, but this is very distracting, and do I really need to do this, and so forth. And my response to them is, this is integral to the practices. Uh, do, you, you know, do you have to do it? No, if you, if you close your eyes, nobody can punish you. But there's very good reason why the great meditation, meditation masters of the past thousand years or so have suggested the eyes should better be open in those practices than just closing them. And it's a thousand years of experience. That's twice as long as a whole history of science and more. And so when people say, but I find it distracting, well, then what I'll tell them is, see if you can develop a skill so it's not distracting anymore. It's just developing a new skill. Like other people say, when I go in the supine position, I always, I always feel dull and drowsy. I tell them, well, develop a new skill. And that is don't. <laughs> you know, get comfortable and just adopt the Shavasana, just for meditation, and overcome that habit. Just develop a new habit and a new association. Shavasana is for meditation. It's not for napping, right? And most people get through it. And those who don't, then they just don't practice in the supine position. Uh, So likewise with the eyes open and finding that distracting. Now, if you have, as you do, sitting at the back of the room, if there's any movement in front of you, if Tai should move, move, which I don't think he does in meditation, but if any movement, any movement in your field of vision while you're meditating and your eyes are open, it catches the attention. I think there's a very powerful evolutionary impulse behind that. If something moves, it might eat us, so pay attention, right? And so that is distracting. That's distracting. And when we're here, we can't control the environment, and and people's movements tend to be very, very small, if there's any at all that we can see. But what I would suggest is if that tendency recurs when you're back in your room, 
then you can control your environment. Number one, there won't be anybody in front of you, so that's taken care of. But I think, as I think I've mentioned in the past, when you're sitting in your own room with, and you're deli- deliberately or not deliberately, your eyes are opening in meditation, just make sure that what's in the field of your vision is very boring and soft lighting. So you may even want to pull the blinds. That makes for very, very soft lighting, mostly dark, actually. Turn off the lights. Make sure there's nothing glaring, uh, nothing flickering like candles or anything like that. And so there's just nothing of interest there. And then I think you'll find that you can meditate really quite, quite well, just with a little bit of practice, uh, that you'll overcome that problem. And when you're here, if there's any movement, it's bound to be a bit distracting. But if you can just release it and say, not interesting, just release it, you know, release your interest and just come back, the problem will be probably solved. Okay? So short is just try to develop a new skill that then you can meditate with eyes open and closed. And I'll give you one practical application of that. Okay? In conclusion. And that is, as I've said so many times, um, that the, the benefit from these shamatha practices overall, uh, especially in our more active, I'll never say when we go back to the real world, because that is so misleading uh, and not true, I think, in many respects. But when we go back to someplace not here, um, especially a socially engaged, active way of life, then we won't want to, I think, I'm going, to probably, I'm going to assume this is probably true for everybody here. We don't really want to see the attention skills, the balance and so forth that we've cultivated here simply vanish when we go back into a very active way of life and say, well, that was a nice eight weeks of exceptional sanity. Wish I had it again, you know. But as much as we can sustain it and let it become embedded in and enrich the way of life to which we're going when we leave here, a major way to do that is not only to have de- regular meditation sessions, at least one, two if possible, not only to maybe take one day a week, one day every fortnight, one day a month, whatever one can, having just occasionally, but on a regular basis, a day just for practice. That really helps a lot. But in addition to that, where we're taking time away from our other responsibilities and duties in the world, another way that doesn't take away from anything no sacrifice, children, no, not, no less time for children, for work, for friends, spouses, and so forth and so on, is to season the day, to season the day with as many 15-second intervals, 30-second, one-minute, two-minute, little like seasonings throughout the course of the day where we can just pause and just come back to any of the three methods, mindfulness of breathing or whatever, but just find that center again and just keep, never, and so we're never gravitating far from it just getting caught up in obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking and not even noticing. You know, that's normal. Unfortunately, that's really normal. And so much wear and tear and so much vulnerability to mental afflictions that way. So clearly, we should be able to move away from that. And so what I'm getting at with the eyes open business is one of the most regular and predictable occasions in which we can season the day is when you come to a traffic intersection where there's a stoplight. You know, there's nothing to do. It's extremely unlikely that you have any obligations to anybody else unless you're in, in right in the midst of a conversation with somebody in the car. But most of us, that's free time. We're not on anybody's clock, right? Uh, in which case, you do need to keep your eyes open because when the light turns, you do need to notice that if you don't want to, if you don't want to irritate everybody behind you, right? So the eyes need to be open. But it's kind of like Alan's question, you know, just noting just short or long you don't need a whole lot of you don't need a whole lot of attention for that 
You need enough, but not much. And likewise, to distinguish between red and green is pretty low-level attention, right? Which means you can give just enough. You can give a 5% tip. A fi- no, I'll give them 10%. A 10% tip to the traffic lights and 90% to your breath or to settling the mind or awareness of awareness. You just give a little tip. Just enough that when it goes from red to green, you notice it and then you make the appropriate response. Okay? But that, that's really good, uh, very practical use of developing the ability to really meditate but with the eyes open. Okay? Also, mindfulness of breathing. Yes? Okay. I was referring to mindfulness of breathing, yeah. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, but it's applicable to others too. When you come to a stoplight, it's not just mindfulness of breathing. That can be really, really nice. But you can also practice settling the mind or awareness of awareness. Just keep your eyes open. Yeah. And keeping the eyes open in mindfulness of breathing is, is perfectly fine too. You know? No problem. Okay? Jolly good. Another one. Ho, ho. Yes, it's again mindfulness of breathing. And it concerns um, um, exci- excitation, yes. um, medium and, and coarse excitation. Um, because what I found out w- is that uh, when I, I get into the flow of, of, of uh, attending to the breath, mm-hmm. especially at the aperture of the nostrils, yes, um, and then only medium excitation sets in, mm-hmm. no coarse excitation. Yeah, great. And um, but in medium excitation, I also have the impression that they, the the thoughts they, they they take me away. There mm-hmm. is still um, I can I, I can still not in, in the background I can feel the breath yes um, but I'm taking the, uh, away as well and yes. it feels like uh, coarse excitation before yeah. although I know I'm aware that I'm that the breath is somewhere in the background yeah. so I have I have the impression that that medium excitation and coarse excitation feel the same mm-hmm. very good what you've just given is really one of the clearest. Uh, experiential accounts of medium excitation that I've heard. So for the record, for the podcast, that was really, really good um, description, you know, from experience, that this medium excitation is not just some philosophical construct that some, you know, some intellectual came up with. As you described it, you feel you're carried away, but you're still kind of, you're not totally disengaged from the breath. You're still aware of the breath. But the other one is kind of taken, is dominating, dominating your attention and pushing the breath off to the side a bit. That's exactly medium excitation. Exactly. Right? So, I don't know if you know this English term, but if I'm humoring someone, do you, do you, it, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with laughter. But if a... Um, do, you, do you know the term in English? It's, it's actually a good, good term. To humor someone is, is actually not treating them with much respect. If I... Oh, with, with Beng. If Beng should tell me, oh, I achieved the fourth jhana this afternoon. It was really great. You know, I could... Main my, maintain my attention for 15 minutes at a straight. It was really, fourth jhana was really great. But, but, but that's not even a good example. A kid, because Bang is, is, is an adult, mature adult. No, a little kid. A little kid who's heard, heard about fourth jhana and said, hey, Dr. Wallace, I've just achieved the fourth jhana. I could focus for at least 10 seconds at a time. Um, this is much better. Bang's an adult. But a little kid, well, I would, oh, that's, that's really good. Well, keep it up, you know, that's... That's really cute. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking the child seriously. I'm not just saying, oh, you're wrong. You're full of baloney. You know, what an idiot. I'm just, oh, that, well, that's sweet. Because I'm not going to really correct it. You know, a 10-year-old who's talking about the fourth jhana. 
There's no really reason to correct him at this point. I mean, it's not a worthwhile discussion with a 10-year-old. But if the child is getting enthusiastic about meditation and kind of happy to be able to focus for 15 seconds, I'll humor them. That means I'll kind of smile and so forth, but not taking them that seriously. But, you know, still paying attention and giving response. Maybe that's not a terrible example. But with a kid, you know, I'm just, I'm just humoring you. That is like that. So in a similar fashion, we're humoring the breath. That is, we're not really giving it our full attention. We're not taking it very seriously. But we're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. In breath, out breath. Gotcha. Now, what was that your, con- your concepts had in mind? That's much more interesting. In breath, out breath. Yeah, keep it up there. Good with that mindfulness breathing. Keep it going. Yeah, yeah. And now back to the, what, what's really interesting. You know? And so we're humoring the breath, just like I'm humoring a 10-year-old talking about the fourth jhana, you know, giving them attention, but not much and not taking it seriously. So that's a really good description of medium excitation. And if you check out the, the, the notes, I think I probably gave those notes in Hamburg, but the notes that I standardly give for a one-week retreat, they're online, then you'll check that out. And if you see the description of medium excitation, that's it. The distraction o- occupies the center of your attention and the meditative object is off to the periphery. Now, how does that differ from coarse excitation? And I would say that the feel really is different. And I think you've all experienced coarse excitation, so it shouldn't need much explanation. Um, you're, sitting, you're sitting there or lying there, but let's say sitting, and from outside it looks like, oh, good posture, yeah? Good, good posture? And, what up, and so I'm going to practice mindfulness breathing now. fooled you. I was really thinking about whether they have ice cream tonight. <laughs> you know, And whether they have any new flavors or whether it's going to be those standard six, because I think they pretty much keep with the six. Um, and I hope they don't let it get too hard, because it's hard. It's really hard to get out of the bins. They should really soften it up a little bit. Uh, but, oh, what? Mind- oh, yeah, mindfulness of breathing, that too. So, man, I mean, I had jumped out of the meditation hall into the dining room, and I'm really thinking about six flavors of ice, ice cream. There's no breath in there at all. It's just gone. You know, that's complete. That's coarse excitation. I completely forgot the opt. Totally. Right. So that's the difference. Yeah, no, but um, when I say it feels like, like um, coarse excitation before felt, because when, when coarse excitation set in, uh, the mind is, is completely engaged in it. And, that's and, right. And it's just, You're just away. Away. And uh, what, what I refer to is um, probably... Um, how how loud the sound of the the, the sword is in cross excitation, mm-hmm. and now the, the the same volume of voice uh, it's the gotcha. same like in, in, gotcha, in gotcha, medium gotcha. excitation. Yep, you know I'm going to give an analogy where time is just uh, is basically up right now, but I'm going to give an analogy from the Mahayana teachings on these paths, these five paths, and they say when you're right at the beginning, when you're just just starting your practice. When a mental affliction arises, a bit of craving arises, a bit of hostility arises, we can tolerate it quite easily. You know, it's, it's not that hard. And it's, they say it's like, feet, uh, like a hair dropping into the palm of your hand. So we can tolerate it. Oh, yeah, but I'm just human. What I expect? So I get some craving. Here's my hostility there. It's not that bad. I mean, you know, easy come, easy go, live and let live, and all that kind of business. You know, mental affliction, yeah, whatever. Whereas the, exactly the same mental affliction, if you're an Arya, like an Arya, the sa- exactly the same mental affliction, if you could tra- do a, a mental affliction transplant and move it from the ordinary person's mind and put that right into the aria's mind, that same mental affliction would be, they say, like a hair dropping into your eye. Much more vivid and intolerable. You have to blink, blink, blink until it gets out. You can't stand it, right? 
It's the same mental affliction. But the sensitivity is much, much greater. Much, much greater. Which means you're going to apply antidotes for even the most subtle afflictions. They hurt. You experience, when I said mental afflictions disrupt the equilibrium of the mind. Yeah, relative to what? Relative to what? Big relativity there. So that's what you're experiencing. The, your, as your mind becomes more stable, vividness starts to increase. That which previously would have been considered you know, really fine, now is just as intrusive as coarse excitation was in an earlier phase. So this is all good. And later on, when you're on stage five, stage six, when only subtle excitation is arising, then you may very well find that even subtle excitation is still as, as intrusive as medium excitation had been, as medium excitation was relative to when you previously had coarse excitation. So it's a good thing that the mind is getting more sensitive because this gives us the incentive to keep on more and more subtly tuning the mind, finer and finer, until stage seven, stage eight, not even subtle excitation or laxity arises. So it keeps us, keeps us motivated, not satisfied too soon. Right? Not satisfied too soon, because then we can become complacent. Okay? Very good. Well, I was surprised and actually delighted. There are so many questions about this morning's practice. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, then I will open the discussion again for the phase two of the mindfulness of breathing. Uh, but also, uh, we didn't have any chance this afternoon uh, to address just some of the challenges of this balancing act of maintaining the coherence of attention and yetting, yet letting it flow with different thoughts arising, images arising, aspirations arising as we engage in discursive meditation. That's really quite a challenge, and we're not taught it in school. We're not taught it in school. We always have a base. We're reading something or something like that. Whereas now with nothing in front of us, no prop to be, to be doing this just freestyle, you know, but maintaining that balance of coherence while we're attending to different phases of loving-kindness practice and so on, uh, keeping it rolling but keeping it coherent, uh, keeping it fluid and yet not just having it unravel, that's a real skill. Uh, and it's easier to do when there's a guided meditation, when there's guidance that we're receiving because that keeps on corralling the mind, bringing it back. But of course, this is a skill to internalize so we're giving our, ourselves our own guided meditation. So, I'm very content. I myself am very content with the afternoon's discussion. So let's have dinner. We'll all find out whether there's ice cream. Uh, and I'll see you tomorrow morning. Okay.